Life and Leadership with Bobby Kerr, a News Talk original. Brought to you by Amundi, an asset manager working today for all our tomorrows. Now, my guest for this episode is a very successful businessman, a two-time presidential candidate, a motivational speaker, and former Dragon and Dragon's Den. I visited Sean Gallagher in his beautiful home in County Wicklow to talk life and leadership and to hear about his experience on that controversial presidential debate show in 2011. So today I'm delighted to welcome to life and leadership, Sean Gallagher, who's invited me here to his house in Greystones. And Sean, firstly, it's great to catch up with you. Secondly, you're so welcome to the programme. And thirdly, why Greystones? As always, Bobby, it's great to, great to chat to you. Greystones is a unique place, I think. And when we came here first, we fell in love with it. Um, it's, got, um, it's got the sea and the beaches. You've got the mountains. Uh, and as somebody who comes from Cavan, having that sort of mountainous terrain is, is attractive. Um, um, it's a great community. And because it was a small traditional community, so many people have come from outside. So it's a really welcoming environment. Lots of young families, great activities for kids, great schools, and so accessible to Dublin and at the heart of everything. Okay. Now, I've known you a long number of years, and I've also known that you've never really been truly attached to bricks and mortar, i.e., you know, if, whether it was Black Rock in County Louth or even when you were in Dublin before, you were a man who could move on, but I sense you may not be moving on from here. Well, my wife Trish tells me that if I do move on from here, I'll probably be doing it as a single single man. I, I don't genuinely have any attachment to material things and like houses or, 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 or anything like that. And I find that there are wonderful places to live. And I also come with the sense that Wherever you live, there are wonderful people uh, if you come with that attitude. And I've found everywhere I've lived, Cavan has been the most amazing place to grow up. We lived in Cork for a while um, and amazing people, amazing communities. Um, and I, I just get this great sense of Greystones being such a welcoming and a wonderful place for kids to grow up. And, and now that we're at that stage, that's more my focus really than anything else. Yeah. A community great young people, great schools, great facilities and accessible to Dublin and everything that comes with the capital. Let's go back to Ballyhays. I know you were born in Monaghan, but your early childhood was spent in Ballyhays. Um, you had a tough start in that uh, you had a problem as a, as, a, as a child with your eyesight. Uh, I think it was detached cataracts, but it meant that you were effectively blind until you were almost three years of age. Yes, yeah, so I was born with what's called congenital cataracts. And most people would understand cataracts as being, as, as you age, the, the lens of your eye gets covered over, sort of clouded. Um, and it's, it's prominent as you get older. And as we have an aging population, it's very prevalent. But a small number of people are born with it. And so the lens is, 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 is effectively clouded. And so it's very hard to see. I often equate it like um, to trying to see through the bottom of a glass bottle of milk, where it's sort of clouded. And so when I was very blessed when I was three um, to meet a doctor who was a pioneer and did some corrective surgery, could not at the time remove the cataract. So because there was a little bit of clear lens on the edges of the cataract, he cut my pupil to make it into, into um, uh, um, almost like a cat's eye keyhole. 
and it allowed me to see in the periphery of the lens. And one of the downsides was, obviously, my sight would never be uh, great, but also uh, I was very sensitive to light. So as a kid growing up, that was very difficult, not being able to see the blackboard in school, struggling, you know, to read small print. And as a result of that, a lot of people, you know, at that stage before there was any sort of psychology or interventions in uh, SNAs, you know, you know, you were left to your own devices in many yeah. ways. And while my parents were great and got me surgery, I struggled uh, through that. Uh, and I think that that gave me so many challenges. Um, Do you think it held you back? Oh, it definitely held me back. I mean, even in secondary school, I, I gave up honours maths after the first day. I gave up chemistry because when I was younger, the teachers would typically, back in those days, write on the board with chalk. And they would speak it, they would write. But when you got to secondary, and I would then transcribe it, so I have a brilliant memory. But when I got to secondary school, um, you, you couldn't fool that. You couldn't, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't short circuit that. The teachers were writing stuff on boards in, in you know, algebra and chemical formations, formulations. And so I just, I just had to opt out. Uh, and, and, but what it made me feel in many ways, it, it made me feel less um, le- less than anybody else in the class in terms of not being able uh, to keep up with them. And at the same time, it also, and in everything in life, the, um, the challenges you face, there's always an upside. And my upside was from meeting some great teachers who encouraged me to focus on the things I could do and not worry about the things I couldn't. And so I developed an incredible determination that nothing was going to stop me. And that, that has stayed with me to this day. Amazing, yeah. Um, and your career effectively started at, what, 10 years of age? I know you worked in the local bar at the weekends. Uh, and, you know, a local pub in a small village, a lot goes on there. You could see an awful lot of the school of life in a place like that. Fellas coming in, you know, even the fellas who own the pub, the way they operate it. What did you learn there? So two brothers bought the pub and they were in their late 20s, Pat and Hugh Brady and it was called Brady Brothers and it was a pub and a shop and a, and a small farm and so I had grown up my, my, my father came from a small farm on, on, on Donegal and so I had a great interest in that and so at a very early age I started packing uh, the shelves with bottles. I started to meet the customers. I started to collect the glasses. And then when I was about 12, I, I started becoming a pint puller. So we had a festival in our, in our, in our parish every, every, uh, every summer. And so I stood in an upturned, uh, upturned uh, mineral crate at the time to be able to reach the taps. Uh, but it was the essence of a university to meet people, uh, diverse background, great community. It's where uh, it's where the meetings of the local tidy towns took place. It's where the GAA was discussed, the same members of the community coming together. It was the hub of social activity. And I think it's it's a trait I see in so many entrepreneurs, Bobby, as I'm sure you do, that having a part-time job when you're younger exposes you to business, but also to great life's lessons. And that life's lessons is fundamentally how to get on with people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So your early studies, uh, you attended uh, Chagas Agricultural College, which was only down the road in Ballyhays. Did, did you think that maybe a career in farming was 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 maybe for you at that stage? Was that... or 
What, what was your idea about going, attending there? Well, my father had moved from Donegal and, and he had um, attended Ag College and he had gotten a job in the local department of agriculture. And so, and, and the village, as you say, was built around the agricultural college, which was an old landlord estate uh, dating back to the 1800s. And so, um, if you imagine coming out of not really excelling at, at, at academic life, I wanted to find something that I enjoyed and I enjoyed the outdoors and I enjoyed hard physical work and that work ethic and many of the people in my community around me were all small farmers so I studied there and I went from being maybe the middle of my class in Leaving Cert to being the top of my class because I found something I could do that didn't rely yeah. on, on, on reading um, but, but I loved that and I, I had many jobs after that, I got a job in the college, I worked in poultry uh, I worked um, with Bailieborough Co-op for a number of years again working with farmers and selling meal and fertiliser and building supplies. And, you know, whatever be working in a pub, if you can survive dealing with farmers and subcontractors and builders who are great characters and great entrepreneurs, you can survive anything. And, and that whole community that I grew up in, Bobby, you know, that was full of entrepreneurs. Now, they never knew or called themselves entrepreneurs. Yeah. Small builders, plumbers, plasterers, Fellas carpenters. bought and sold stuff. Bought and yeah. sold stuff. Yeah, worked hard. And, yeah. as you say. and the farmers, the same thing. They were all entrepreneurial. Yeah. Um, after college, yourself and your dad bought a, a small farm. Uh, and I know you still had the part-time job in the pub. but And I think you were working with a local agricultural group as well. But you... you, you had an innov- an, a relatively innovative way to stocking that farm. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I, I, I came home from, uh, from uh, a dance at the time in the local White Horse Hotel with a local farmer who I helped out on the farm. Uh, and, and, he had, um, and he had a cow who was calving late one night. Uh, and I ended up buying the calf. And I thought to myself, oh, this is really great now. So we ended up getting some land. And I noticed that many, and this is where, you know, spotting the opportunity and meeting the market demand, as you might say, in, in enterprise. A lot of farmers who were coming into the co-op where I worked were elderly, and they would often say to me, do you know anybody, Sean, who would paint a shed for me, uh, a farm shed or an outhouse? And I said, well, sure, I'll do that. And, and so in, instead of charging them money, uh, for the paint and money for the labour. I, I bought the paint in the store myself uh, and I provided the labour myself and instead of money, I charged them a, a calf, as we would say in, in farming terms, a suck calf, which was a young baby calf. And before I knew it, I had a dozen of these on a small farm. Uh, and initially, I had them in the back uh, yar- yard and garden of my house in the village uh, and uh, the neighbours used to be awoken in the mornings with calves looking for their milk. And I would run home at lunchtime, feed them, and the same in the evening, same in the morning. Uh, and, uh, and my father retired, and one of my, my great memories is that he had the, the small farm, and, and it was only 12 or 13 acres to work on uh, when he retired. And that was a saving grace for him and a great time for us. You know, uh, we often say that women talk face to face, uh, but but men do it shoulder to shoulder, uh, and we were able to be on the farm, and that was a great bonding exercise for us. Very interesting. Now, one of your earlier setbacks was a car accident uh, that made you effectively unemployed at the same at, 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 for the first time. How did that come about, or, and what were the what were the implications of that? Yeah, I was, I was, I was, uh, I was, I was um, in a, in a car accident, and I damaged my back and my neck. And of course, physical work within the agricultural co-op, lifting meal and fertilizer bags and hundredweights of this and that. 
meant that I wasn't able to work for a period. And again, it's it's like trying to turn that adversity into something positive. But the, the biggest challenge was that I was out of work. And for a mind like mine that wants to grow and develop and continuously focusing on challenges, uh, I was I was lost. I, the first time in my life I was ever lost. Uh, and, and I learned at that time, Bobby, and it's one of the reasons why I'm so committed to enterprise and, and job creation, I discovered that when you lose your job or you're not able to work for any reason, you don't just lose a job. Uh, you lose your title, you lose your reason to get up in the morning, you lose your income, but more importantly, you lose the network of contacts through which you'll probably get your next opportunity. But fundamentally, and at the core of it all, you lose your self-confidence and your self-esteem. Yeah. Because when we, and particularly in Ireland, when you meet people, you'll ask them, who are you, what's your name, where are you from, and what do you do for a living? And when you can't answer that third question, you avoid people and you become introverted. And that's why I'm so, I'm so focused on trying to help people get out of that environment, get into education, get into training, whatever you do, get out, stay out, and continue to grow. Uh, and, and unemployment hit me harder than anything. I, I used to, and the only way I could cope with it at the time, remember it well, there was a, a road through the agricultural lands called the Old Bog Road, I tramped that road three or four times a day, walking out my frustration. And my fear was not that I'm stuck where I am, but my fear being, as it is for many people who find themselves in unemployment, what if it doesn't get any better? What if I never get to be who I know I'm capable of becoming? And what do I do about it? Yeah. And that's, <clears throat> when, that's when I took the next opportunity. And you moved from there into youth work, which, again, as somebody who was I had, was entrepreneurial and had maybe one eye on making a few quid, I would have said youth work is probably the last place you'd want to go uh, if, if you were looking for uh, a pot of gold. See, people who know me and know me well, and lots of people would have, you know, perceptions of you and I and from Dragon's Den and entrepreneurs as being capitalists. But I sit somewhere, those who know me well know that I sit somewhere between a monk and a marketeer. I would quite happily be a monk in a monastery, meditating, doing physical work and doing good deeds. Uh, but I would miss the cut and trust of business. And I'd be happy in business, but I, I want to be grounded in the reality of a philosophy I have, which is not just about doing well, but about doing good. And so how that came across is most of what I learned in my life that helped me to become successful I did not learn in the formal education system, not just because of my sight, but because much of it I found irrelevant to the challenges of what I was dealing with as a young person, as all of us deal with growing up. What I learned was through Faroiga Youth Development Organization. I learned about, uh, on, on my first ever weekend with, with the youth organization Faroiga, I learned about focusing on what are your strengths? What do you want out <clears throat> of life? And that life is self-determined. Uh, it's not what happens to you. You make life happen, that you have to have an intentional life. And that's where you have to see what are your strengths, what do you want to achieve in, in life, and you set goals. And when I was unemployed, I got invited, because of my experience with Faroga locally, locally, I was the chair of the local youth group, uh, I got invited to a youth reach program under what was called the VEC, the Vocational Education Committee. And I was brought in to talk to a group of 20 young kids who had fallen through the cracks in the educational system. And I guess I could understand where they were struggling. And most of them, when I asked them what their life goals were, they didn't have any because they came from second and third generation of unemployed. They didn't have any role models. And so I often say to people, you know, when they have expectations of young people, 
young people, they cannot be what they cannot see. So if they don't have role models to aspire to, who they see going to work and having goals and going to college, those kids will never be able to get to the next level. And so I went in there to help them build their confidence and, their, and, and, and encourage them. And I found that I needed to learn more. So I went to Maynooth to become one of the first professional youth workers in Ireland. And I studied there for a couple of years. Came out, I worked with young offenders. Uh, I worked and lived for a period with the Navin Traveling Community one, on a youth project. And I got exposed to all of that. And off the back of that, then I put all of that youth skills and life training and feroiga uh, into another area of mine, which is something I had a big interest in, which was the area of health and the health promotion unit of the Department of Health commissioned me to write the first ever life skills program uh, for the government. And it was nine modules about how to uh, prepare young people to have the skill sets, self-esteem, assertiveness, how we make decisions, uh, to focus on the avoidance of the abuse of alcohol and drugs. And I spent the next two years writing that program, which was with 50 or 100 volunteers across the country, uh, brought everything of my life experience into that to help give young people the life skills because we don't learn those life skills in school, the things that we need to survive and thrive in life. And do you think young people, particularly teenagers, you know, that they should, are they taken seriously enough? Do you think, do you think we should be guided by them more as a society? So, my nine-year-old Bobby teaches me lots of, lots of things. So I would often say to him, you know, you, you need to correct your handwriting or you need to correct this particular piece of homework. And he looked at me sternly and he said, Dad, everything doesn't have to be perfect. And I have to shrug my shoulders and say, you're dead right. And I think we do and can learn a lot from young people. Uh, I, I think one of the challenges I see uh, with society and young people is that we send our kids, they're born vibrant and creative, they're asking questions, they're falling over, making mistakes, trying new things, but we send them to school. Um, we send them to school with a view of socialising them, of normalising them, and then I think we compromise them because we want them to look the same in the uniforms, we want them to turn up at the same times, we want them to learn the lessons that they're being asked, we don't want them to make mistake, mistakes, we sort of criticise them when they make mistakes, and then we want them, uh, again, through college, the same thing, and then we want them to come out at 22 and 23 to be independent thinkers, and innovators who are willing to take risk. So yeah. that's been bet out of them. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, th I think we need to change <clears throat> because young people have the most incredible energy and ideas. And if you tap that in with experience, and that's why mentoring of businesses, I think, is just the perfect blend where you, 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 you blend innovation and energy and creativity with experience. Tell us about your early political life, Sean. I know you became head of Ogre, which is Young Fianna Fáil. So firstly, what attracted you to that? And what was your experience as, you know, uh, somebody who became, I suppose, quite prominent uh, as a young Fianna Fáiler? And it's really ironic. I, I didn't grow up in a, in a house where politics was ever even discussed. Um, but because I worked in the local bar, Brady Brothers, uh, every, every uh, month the local Fianna Fáil common had its, had its meeting there. Now, in truth, 
had that pub been where the local Fine Gael meeting was held, I probably would have joined Fine Gael. That's how simple it was at the beginning. But most of the people who were in the bar and going to those local Fianna Fáil common meetings, local club meetings, were the chairman of the GEA, the Tidy Towns Committee, all the various committees and people that I knew, local farmers, all spokespersons. And that was the thing at the time that Local politicians particularly came from the community and represented their communities. They weren't professional politicians. And so given my experience with uh, with uh, Faroiga and getting involved in helping to start a group that built a community centre because we didn't have any facilities, uh, I was invited one night to sit down and most of these common members uh, were elderly. Um, and they came along and said, look, we'd really, really like to get your views on What's important to young people and what should we be thinking about? And I sat down and I said, well, look, you need more young people in politics. You need more women. Uh, you, need to be, you, know, you need to be more futuristic looking in terms of, uh, of, of getting more people into the, into the organization. And before I knew it, uh, the following week I was appointed uh, as the Ogre representative for Ballyhays. And a couple of months later, I became uh, head of uh, Young Fianna Fáil Ogre in Cavan. And six months later, Connacht Ulster. And about 12 months later, I was on the national executive heading up Ogre Fianna Fáil, uh, along at the time, would you believe, with another prominent uh, uh, politician called Michal Martin. So we both served on the national executive representing, he represented Ogre Fianna Fáil in Munster, and I represented Ogre Fianna Fáil in Connacht and Ulster. And we were the sort of voice of the young people trying to shape, I guess, um, an older aged uh, uh, political organisation. But these were great men and women. I mean, and I, I often got stick during the presidential campaign about Fianna Fáil. The people that I grew up with and the people in the parties, the, 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 the troops on the ground, so to speak, they were all committed to the communities over all those years and, and amazing people and I learned so much from them. So there was probably another fork in the road around this time. Will I go down the political route? Will I stay in youth work? Correct. Where did the entrepreneurial bit come in? Well, the, 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 the first uh, dipping of my toes in, in politics uh, outside of just uh, being a volunteer came at the end of the alcohol programme. Um, Dr. Rory O'Hanlon, who was then the Minister for Health at the time, launched uh, the alcohol programme. And he heard me speaking about uh, young people and about, you know, the changes that I thought needed to be made in society uh, and services for young people. Uh, and he invited me to become, at the age of 28, his political secretary in the Department of Health. And so I went in there for two years. And I guess uh, it was tremendous time being at the heart of it. But I, I learned a very valuable lesson two years later when, when, when I got thrown out of the job, when Albert Reynolds came in uh, and ousted Charlie Hawhey in what became known as the uh, St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And all the assistants and advisors uh, of the ministers who were, were sacked were all let go. Yeah. And I had just bought a house uh, in Castleknock, my first house. Uh, I had a mortgage and no job. Uh, and I then sat down and I fell back on my training in Froegia about self-determination. Uh, it's not what happens to you in life. It's what you do about what happens to you. And so... I said, right, I'm determined never again to be unemployed, ever. And the only way I can do that is if I take control of my own life. So I, wanna, I want to be an entrepreneur. And I looked around, and I have a, 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 I've since had a, a coach and mentor in the U.S., Jack Canfield, famous for writing Chicken, Chicken Soup, Soup for, for the, the soul. soul. And Jack has a great philosophy about success. You have to get from where you are to where you want to be. And I had to build a bridge. And I said, well, what do I know? I know youth work. I know communities. I know training. I know unemployment. And so I applied for a job with the local Blanchardstown Partnership 
developing interventions for people long term, uh, those with long term unemployed in the Blanchestown area. This was before the shopping centre in Blanchestown was developed. It was a greenfield site. I walked it in the idea of putting training and job opportunities uh, in front of people, you know, who were long term unemployed. And I was there for a period. And then I, I said, right, I, I, I don't have a business idea and I don't have any money and I really don't have any great solid experience in running a business. So a job came up in Louth, uh, a border area I was familiar with, to join the Enterprise Board at the time, doing local development. And I set a five-year plan in 1995. I would uh, learn everything I could about business. I would interview every entrepreneur that walked through the door uh, looking for assistance. I would coach and mentor them all. I would go back to college and do another degree, a master's in business, and I would launch a business within the five years. And that happened one month less than the five years. And uh, that was with Derek Roddy and, and Smart Homes. Did you know Derek of old or how did you come together on this venture? I was part of a group that led a trade mission to the east coast of America. Um, and one of the companies locally, was uh, Derek was representing Belorgan Engineering. And Derek was a, an Olympic um, tool maker, an incredible guy. And we just teamed up. And we, we came across this opportunity when Derek was having a, a business meeting with somebody uh, he wanted to do business with in the U.S. And they had left the job to go off to work in the area of home technology. And both Derek and I had, pre, had just recently bought houses and we realized that they were still being wired with the traditional you know, phone socket in the hall, like as if that was where technology was going. Whoever sits in the hall on the phone and no networking, no audio, no, no, no security, no control of your heating, all of that. So we came home and neither of us had a bag. I couldn't wire a plug at the time. And uh, we came home and uh, we, we had the idea um, in, in the States and we actually set up smart homes on a bar in the Doubletree Hotel in Chicago. And we said, that's it. Um, and it took us two years to get it up and running. Uh, and then we joined forces and the next 10 years we rode a roller coaster. Now we were pioneers, we were introducing something new and innovative into a traditional construction sector and as everybody knows being a pioneer is dangerous because most people, pioneers get shot in the back uh, or, or, or you run out, of, uh, run out of road in educating the market. Building was happening, residential housing was, was and we started doing 50 houses um, in, in year one. And by 2007, we were doing over 2,000 houses and apartments across the country, including the contract for Adamstown, the new town at, uh, yeah. uh, in the West Dublin. And that was great. We won lots of awards and, and we were doing great. Uh, and now I left that in 2011. Um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in another mad escapade uh, to, to run for the office of president. Uh, and Derek continued on the company. And, and um, before I left, we, we, we put some money in our R&D into a heating control system. And Derek took that over and created Climate, which has now gone on to do amazing things and is, is, is set to have an incredible future. Yeah, yeah. And just during that decade, you know, if you look at... People in business, you know, for four decades, you know, if you get something like the acute recession that we had in 2008, 2009, or a pandemic or some major event that just pulls the rug out from under you, like a lot of businesses were able to adapt. A lot of people were able to reinvent themselves. But what would you say to people? Would you say that something like that is always going to happen to you if you're in business for, for three decades, say? You're going to have some challenge of magnitude or multiple challenges of magnitude. I think that's absolutely 100%, Bobby. I mean, 
change is inevitable. And, um, you know, I was doing a talk a few years ago for the transport industry and I was looking for a quote around change. And I came across one which I used, which is that a bend in the road is not the end of the road unless you fail to take the turn. Yeah. And lots of bends come in the road. And if you're fixed in, you know, on going linear and you can't take the bend and be agile and pivot, uh, then you can end up off the road. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people. However, business, as we know, is cyclical. It's up and it's down. It comes in time and cycles, but it always comes with challenges, whether that's challenges in the economy or it's innovation and new technology uh, that leaves you behind if, you, if you're not innovative and, and willing to adapt and change. And for me, I always fall back on an old uh, mentor's advice, which was, uh, which was a, 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 it went along like this, and I, I used to wear it on my arm as a, as a band. It says E plus R equals O. Event plus your response to the event equals the outcome. And when you have no control over and can't change the event, the only way you have of changing the outcome is by changing your response to it. And so in every, if you take the crash, the number of people who who just hope that things would work out and hope is really important. Uh, You won't get up in the morning without it. But hope is not a strategy. And a lot of people in, in pandemics and in crisis, they just, Hope that things will work out and you have to take control of your life. And the first thing I say to people is turn off most of the negativity, turn off most of, of you know, the, the doomers and the gloomers uh, and the opinion makers that are out there giving you their view on how bad the world is. 99% of what you hear on the news, you can't control. What you do is control your controllables, your family, your health, your business, your employees, your customers, look after that and then figure out a strategy that you can remain relevant throughout that challenge and thereafter. And so it is in being able to pivot in and adapt. That's where people survive. And that's true in life, not just in business. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm going to come to the presidency and all that in a while, but between uh, between smart homes and the presidency came uh, and a, a bit of reality TV <laughs> uh, where you and I soldiered together. Uh, namely on Dragon's Den. What are your memories of Dragon's Den now when you think back? I love Dragon's Den and uh, everywhere I go, you know, people are amazing, particularly people of our age who watch that. Um, I I think it made a big dent in Ireland way beyond the entertainment value, which it was, of people coming in and, and us perhaps giving them a hard time, but hopefully also encouraging them. I think the biggest thing and the thing that I enjoyed most out of Dragon's Den is that it put into the hands of ordinary people, let's call them ordinary people, who had ideas that they too could aspire to be an entrepreneur. We gave them language around, you know, pitching their idea, having a business plan, financial projections, uh, valuations, all of that, equity. And so it's pretty amazing Then out of that, many of us, you included, I know, spend a lot of time, you know, meeting young people and doing Dragon's, Dragon's Den panels. And it always inspires me when I go back to, again, tying in my youth work days, to go to primary schools and secondary schools and to be met at the door by a 12-year-old who tells you he's setting up or she's setting up a mini company and they're the managing director and an 11-year-old behind them who's sales director and that they got 20 euros from their parents as seed capital and they have this great idea and they'll make profit. Like, they were terminologies that I didn't know at 22 or 32, never, never mind 12. So I think it got the idea of 
of giving people the idea that they could start their own business and create their own job and hopefully more. That, to me, was the power of it, as well as having great fun with you guys. Well, I, I was going to say that. It was a bit of fun. And again, you know, none of us made any real money out of it. Let's, let's be honest here. But we did have a bit of fun along the way. And it was a different time as well, I say to people. You know, I'd worked hard for a few bob. I lost a few bob over the, over the series. But I, I, I felt it was a good investment in me to do the things, the other things that, it create, that, that all, you know, spun out of it. Which, yeah. which, were, which were many. It did. I think it gave us a platform to go out and meet other people and to share our message of, you know, how important, um, how important business is. And, and at that time, you know, um, we'd come out of a crash and, you know, the whole idea of being an extravagant business person flying in in your helicopter, that was sort of done. You know, that's not what it was about. It was people in survival mode. But if, if I tie back the thing back to my youth work days and my time being unemployed. What I loved most about Dragon's Den was I'm into solutions and intervening in the lives of young people who are in trouble is short-term lived. If you want to solve the problems of society and disadvantage among young people, there's only two ways in all my study over the last 40 years is that you must focus on education and employment. If people are educated, they can find a job or create a job. And if people can get employment, whether they create it for themselves or some other entrepreneur has created a job, they can then have their mortgage. They can be then role models for their kids. They can then provide their, you know, their own uh, contribution. And that, to me, is, is the real challenge of education and employment being the only long-term solution to disadvantage by giving young people those role models and environments in which they can then Excel, And to me, that was what drew me into politics as well. Life and Leadership with Bobby Kerr. A News Talk original. Brought to you by Amundi, an asset manager working today for all our tomorrows. What was the thinking around running for the presidency? When did you come, first come up with that idea and why did it mean so much to you? I think back to my, my mentor, Jack Canfield, I was sitting in the US and I was, uh, I was looking at what was happening across the globe. And I was looking at, you know, this is before, you know, other people outside of politics across the world entered, entered the, the, you know, presidency and politics. I looked around and I thought, this is just too much the same. And I'd been inspired what, by what Mary McAleese had done. And I'd, I'd been a huge, a huge supporter of hers. And I thought, you know what? Why, why, why would we not have a, polit- uh, a president that's outside of politics in terms of never being elected? And if I loved young people, and I, at the time you have to go back to 2011, post-crash, doom and gloom, we were talking ourselves in the media about how bad Ireland was and what a basket case we were financially. And I was saying, back to my thing, back to my core policy, you know, E plus R equals O. We can't change that, but we have to change our response to it. Let's come out with a more positive response. We can rebuild Ireland. We're a great people. So why wouldn't I get involved and just spread my message? And my message was simple. I, I toned it down to a very simple, simple mantra. And when I, when I went for the nomination, I stood as an independent. I traveled the country and I went back to the people, Bobby, that I had spoken to in community halls, in youth groups, long-term unemployed groups, farming groups, sports groups. And within eight weeks, I had a campaign team of over two and a half thousand people out campaigning for a very simple message, which was 
If you get people back to work uh, and you can lift their spirits, you can change a nation. Remind us, Sean, if you would, in that first presidential campaign of the other horses in the race. There were some characters in there. There were some great characters. Yeah. Apart from Michael D. Higgins, obviously, and David Norris and, and Gay Mitchell, Mary Davis was, uh, was, again, another great, interesting character. I met Mary recently. She's head of Special Olympics globally now. And I was saddened while it was a great campaign. Pe- people often say to me, Bobby, you know, D- d- you know, do you regret going? No, I do not. I never have any regrets about anything I try and do. And while I didn't succeed ultimately at the end, you know, I got over 500,000 first preference votes from people who believed in my message and in me, even despite the, the, the mess of, of the frontline program. But I remember when I think back to that, Mary Davis, and, and I think some of the political media you know, make a little bit of a circus out of the presidency because they don't take it as seriously. Mary Davis had done amazing things for the Special Olympics and changed the lives of families and individuals. My own brother-in-law, Trisha's brother, Kev, Kev had won medals at the at the at the World Games in in Dublin, and he he's now representing Ireland in Berlin this summer. Mary Davis was part of driving all of that, and and because she had been on a board and got paid to be on a board. She got brutalized, I think, in the media for that. And now we fast forward 12 years, 11 years, we're, we're asking people and women to come on boards for diversity. Uh, and I, I think really, you know, I, I think the whole thing about presidential campaigns, it should not be about personalities. It, it, it should be it, about what it's a, what the real message. I know, of. but that's that, that's that's. Never going to happen, Sean. I think you know that. But I do. I do know, Bobby. I do know. It was a nasty campaign, is what you're saying. It was a nasty campaign. I think unnecessarily so. And I remember at one point Mm. turning around to everybody and I said, "I, I don't. I, I, I'm not going to criticize anybody else on the podium. Everybody who stands for election, you know, is standing because they have some idealistic view of what they want to do and that they might be able to contribute. And the whole idea of politics is." If you're brave enough to put your name on a ballot paper and stand before the people, whether you get it elected or not, you should be respected for that contribution. And all the people, the critics who sit at home and, you know, trolls that write stuff on social media, criticizing people who are on the ballot paper. I just had one simple message for them. I stopped reading their, their, their crap. I had one simple, if you can do better or think you know more, put your name on the ballot paper. Until then, stay quiet. And so, but, but I think politics has gone to such a state now where the pendulum has swung too far, where at a time when there were some people who did some unethical things, the pendulum runs, right, has swung so far now that people are afraid to be themselves because they're under such scrutiny. And that's not to say that you shouldn't have ethics. Of course you should. But we also need more people to come forward to be politicians so we can bring a bigger mix of skills and experience into the political system to solve the problems that we are all now suffering from. You were, you were close but no cigar, as they say. <laughs> you, were, you were almost there. Uh, the final furlong, uh, and it all came crashing down in that, in that TV debate. Uh, I should have stayed at home that night and, in the and rain. I know there was a court settlement made, uh, and it relates, but it related to a tweet Mm. Uh, an unverified tweet that was read out and taken as uh, well certainly on, 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 in the heat of the moment it seemed to be taken as fact now I know there's, we can look back and say X, Y and Z happened but you, you I didn't see it coming you probably were a bit like a rabbit that was frozen in the headlights and in that 
probably two minutes, uh, everything that you had worked for and everything that you had stood for almost seemed to unravel in front of your eyes. And another thing I'd like to ask you is that, you know, so many, because that was such a big event in Irish political, uh, in the Irish political landscape, I've no doubt that you often go into the supermarket or you often go to the pub and it's all that people want to talk about. Is that so? There's two questions there. Firstly, to tell us a little bit about the night mm. itself and, you know, and then the, the aftermath, let's talk, let's call it. Yeah, and I, I guess much has been written about it, but, um, and, you know, the key thing for me is I, I summarized it like this. Uh, I walked in on that night uh, 15% ahead of the polls. And the week before that, my, my, my percentages in the polls had gone from 20% to 40%, and I was almost unstoppable. <clears throat> um, um, and you can't get too complacent. I had dealt with all the questions, uh, and I thought we were going okay right until... And, and the first question on the night was, you know, what does it say about a country when you've just thrown out Fianna Fáil, that some ex-Fianna Fáil business guy now looks set to be president. That was the first opening question, and I went, oh, shit, we're in trouble here. And so so I said, this is the tone, this is where it's heading for. So my whole philosophy that night was stay calm, you're representing the country, you want to be presidential, you don't get down and dirty into a conflict. And so I did, and then this famous tweet came in. And it wasn't even that it was unverified. I mean, ultimately, it was from a fake account and it was a fake tweet. Yeah. And and my argument, you know, it unraveled then because I was caught um, trying to answer and recall live on television with a million people watching me. I had answered the question. And and the accusation, when I look back, is ironic. What was it about? It was about the fact that I invited some business people to a fundraiser for Fianna Fáil at which the then Taoiseach, Brian Cowan, was speaking at. Every political party fundraises, but there were, what the attempt was trying to associate me with the fact that they the country, you a bag man, the bag they? man, the yeah. fact that I'd been raising money for Fianna, not <clears throat> not that I had ever benefited or collected any money or for myself. There was no accusation in that, but it was the fact that I was collecting money for Fianna Fáil and that Fianna Fáil had screwed the country, uh, which was wrong. It, it, it was a time that happened, and you know I have a huge regard for Brian Cowan. Uh, 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 and I think he's been badly treated in the last number of years. But that aside, I'm standing there trying to be fair and reasonable and answer a question. And at the time, you know, if I had been more experienced, I would have attacked the question or I would have attacked the questioner. But I tried to answer the question honestly. It didn't happen as the tweet had suggested. And I said that. Uh, but when um, when that was put to me live on TV, um, my biggest argument was, uh, and this is where the whole court case came out of, that the production team knew 30 minutes before the end of the programme that the tweet was fake and they could have clarified it, but they let me sink. Um, and that was mine. And they, and they refused to tell me that that was the truth until I took the case and got the discovery and all of that. And, and I'm not blaming anybody. It is what it is. That's politics. You have to be grown up. You have to take the hard knocks. Um, um, and... Um, uh, and the only reason that I took the case ultimately at the end was that RTE uh, put the programme in for a NIFTA Irish Film and Television Awards programme, knowing some of them at least uh, that it was founded on fake uh, fake tweet uh, and and, uh, and and from a fake Twitter account. And I made sure 
there and then that nobody would ever play that again and take any enjoyment out of it. Um, and so, but in taking the case, no more than anything else, I had to say, what's the positive? How do I turn this around? It's not about the presence. I need to protect my name here in case that people thought that I had done anything inappropriate. And so I took the case. Uh, RTE ultimately came out and said that the programme was unfair, made a settlement which was irrelevant to me at the time, uh, and we got on with it. But more importantly, they changed the rules and regulations and protocols for anybody standing in a presidential election again in terms of election debates. And that really was the, the prize, ultimately at the end. But ultimately, when I look back... I have to stand on my own reputation and make sure. And people do stop, and some people will come up and say, just I'm really sorry that happened with you and all sorts of stuff. And that's all lovely, and everybody is supportive, or most people are supportive. Uh, but it left the question in people's minds. And one of the things which is a challenge in politics is the last debate, you go into a moratorium on the media for the campaign, so there's no way to recover. Now, maybe that was strategic, uh, uh, maybe it wasn't, but in the end... I dropped 15%. They swung to the incumbent Michael D, and the rest is history. I had to lick my wounds, and as uh, as David Goggins, uh, the, the ultra-runner, would say in his book, I had to just get over it. Good man. Okay. And was the running again in 2018, was, that, was any of that, you know, to maybe try and dispel the, the, the previous outing? Was was there any bit of you that was back at the at the table again for another campaign to basically say to to, to cleanse the what had happened uh, on that frontline program? It wasn't it wasn't for that reason, Bobby, but it did serve that purpose as it happened uh, to get it out of my system. Um, I stood because, truthfully, I didn't believe, based on what Michael D. had said previously, that he was only going to run one term. I wasn't sure he was going to go ahead to the finish line and actually go for election. And if he didn't, then there was time to run a proper campaign. There was no campaign. There was no election, really. Once all the um, political parties rode in behind the incumbent, it was a fait accompli. Now, had he pulled out at the last time, and this is the thing about running as an independent, you don't just get nominated by your party. If you're an independent, you have to go on the campaign. You have to fight two elections. You have to fight the first election to go around all the councils to get four of them to nominate you, which takes about three months. And you can't even fundraise for your campaign until you've that done because you don't know whether you're going to be in an election. There's also a financial liability, a personal financial liability that you've got to invest in your own campaign. You've, you've got to raise a couple of hundred thousand um, and... and um, you know, and in, and invest in it, and you've got to take time off whatever you're doing, and all of that. So there's, it's very, very difficult. And so I launched the campaign on the basis: of if Michael D is not running again, uh, and he had done a fine job, if he's not running again, then you know, let's let's get back into this campaign. The campaign didn't take off, and that was fine. Were you, were you surprised to see? Uh, two former dragons uh, joining the joining the pr- procession. I'm sure you are. I was surprised. surprised by one of them. I was surprised not to see you in the race, Bobby. <laughs> there was never any chance if, of that. If I was ever going to vote for another dragon for presidency, it would be most certainly you. Um, I think you would lift the nation's spirit dramatically. I was surprised, but... But then, you know, I look back and I say, you know, what did my running for presidency do? The first sort of non-political person really to ever run for election um, and the first person from a business background. 
And so m- maybe I empowered the other two dragons uh, to, to see what was possible. And if I inspired them, sure, that's great. And uh, it, it, uh, it was a, I would say it was a, a less exciting campaign than the first one. Um, but the result was, I guess, inevitable. Um, and, and so my, my philosophy was don't insult anyone and don't do any damage. If Michael D stays in the race, it's his. If he doesn't, game on. And are you finished with politics now? I have to be very careful in case my wife Trish is listening to this. Yes is the answer, um, at least for now. I focused uh, coming back out of that to rebuild my career uh, and to get my family. uh, uh, From 2011 on, uh, I have two beautiful kids, Bobby and Lucy, age nine and age six. And my focus is on building their future and being financially secure and doing all the things that I do anyway. Youth work, politics is not involved in that business. But I do politics in the sense of trying to, you know, tackle problems through business. Um, um, but, but I don't see a future in politics. I, I respect people in politics. Politics is a very difficult game because you, you're trying to create change within a five-year window to the next election. All of us who deal with big challenges know it's a 20-year horizon with yeah. politicians and politics doesn't lend itself to those long-term uh, horizons. Um, you, 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 have, uh, you mentioned your, your, your two lovely children, Sean. Um, has your attitude changed since you've had kids? And you, 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 you had kids, I suppose, relatively later in life. In other words, you had them... What age were you when Bobby was born? Oh, I was probably 49, I think, yeah. when Bobby yeah. was born. So... Yeah. so did, did that change your perspective on maybe the next 20 or 30 years in terms of what you were going to do with your life? Uh, you'd done lots of things. You, you'd certainly done you'd done business, you'd done politics. But was it now about maybe a bit of, because you had others to look out for, was it about sort of stabilising things? Is that Was that really what the, 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 the new goal was? Yeah, I think anybody who has kids knows that it comes with a, a lifelong responsibility that, you know, you, you, look, looking at a, at a child sleeping and thinking, I'm responsible for, for your well-being, you know, until you're able to provide for yourself. You know, it, it, it brings responsibility um, and very welcome responsibility to me. Um, but it did change my mind. I wanted to be much more selective with where I spent my time and, and how I allocated my, my, my most precious um, um, uh, resource, which is our time. And so I wanted to have time for them. Um, but also uh, I, w- I wanted to then as well create a role model for them, you know, to, to, to be able to live their life and not to be afraid to take risks. Because all of these things that we know about entrepreneurs, about taking risks and going out and using your skills, I wanted to be... I wanted to be there for them um, um, and I wanted to build financial security. Going back to the whole thing of, you know, when you're unemployed, financial security, money doesn't make you happy, but the absence of it would surely make you miserable. Yeah. Tell us about Clyde Real Estate then. Uh, Again, it's been, you've been burrowing away relatively quietly on that for the last number of years. But Mm. what's going on there and what do you hope to ultimately achieve there? So I set up um, Clyde Real Estate um, as a property company with uh, my former, uh, with a f- former co- friend and colleague uh, that, I, that I had soldiered with in Louth, who went on to start his business uh, at the same time, Colin Piercy. Um, and so we set up a property company. Uh, and at the time, and this is 2014, there had been no new buildings since the crash, and particularly in the regions. And only the only office and you know commercial buildings were happening were in the city centre of Dublin. And so we said, there's a need again. If you think back to business, 
you know, what do you need in business? You need a good idea, you need a team, you need some money, uh, uh, but you need a place from which to do business. And no building was happening. So we went to the regions uh, and the suburbs and we bought unused or uh, sub-optimized buildings and brought them back to life. Um, and we did it with, you know, a couple of key conditions. One, it had to be in a, a high urban population, center population, towns and, 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 and suburbs. It had to have a good road infrastructure and it had to be close to university or college. So we bought properties in Dundalk, in Blanchestown, in Carlo, Carlo the old brawn factory in Carlo. We brought in Cork uh, and in Shannon. We bought the Intel R&D facility in Shannon and fill, f- filled that up. Uh, we bought the Voxpro building in Cork. Uh, we bought buildings Alcatel Lucent uh, in 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 Blanchestown, and we had tenants such as Intel, Citibank, Nokia, uh, Digital Realty, um, and uh, and and off we went. And we've built a very large portfolio. One of the sites we have now is we've gone in for planning for 196 apartments, uh, and now I'm looking uh, very closely at um, getting involved in trying to create. Um, you know, social housing uh, and apartments and houses across the country. And again, you know, in the suburbs, in the regions where I'm comfortable. And for all of us who have been battering on about the regions for many years, it's ironic that it wasn't politics who gave life back to the regions. It was COVID when people could move out and commute less often and work remotely. And so that has driven a huge demand for housing. Meditation, Sean. Uh, I know you use it a lot. Would you advise others in business to use it? It's ironic that I started meditating 30 years ago when I took up karate or 35 years ago um, because, uh, and and not for a spiritual meaning, but when you go on a karate floor, if you're thinking about, you know, what you had to do in the office that day, you'll you'll get a box in the mouth. So you have to empty your mind to be present. Um, And I learned meditation and found the benefits of it, and I've been meditating since... You know, 30 years ago, if you asked business people, would they meditate, they'd laugh, they'd laugh as if you were part of some cult. Nearly every course now is about, you know, in, in, in business has a piece of mindfulness or a practice. You call it different things. Farmers would have called it leaning across the gate, looking at nature. You know, other people would call it prayer and um, people call it mindfulness. It's being present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just it's the head stuff, isn't it's it? It's the head. Um, how would you like to be remembered? How would I like to be remembered? I, I think fundamentally I've come to realise that the people who matter most in your life are the people who gather around your bed on the last days. And I would like to be remembered as, as a supportive and loving and caring husband. Most importantly, a great father who inspired and encouraged and empowered uh, his kids to be the very best that they can be and to live a life uh, without fear and a life of hope and potential and ambition. Um, to be healthy, wealthy, but most importantly, to be happy. Um, And I'd like to be remembered as somebody who took whatever health faculties, gifts, abilities that I got uh, and and developed them to the best of my potential and that I helped as many people along the road as I could uh, with their challenges and hopefully inspired a few more to live their life to the full of their potential. Uh, And most importantly, um, that I give it everything and left like the old football match, I left everything on the pitch and took nothing with me. Sean, we have two questions that we ask all our guests, uh, and they're very simple, but the first one is, who is your legend of leadership? I don't have any big names, Bobby. The people who impress me in leadership, uh, leadership uh, is, and I think leaders are twice born, those who come through adversity and then try and chase, change the world that created that. The likes of Brezzi, 
for his mental health campaign, the likes of Vicky Phelan again, who came through her campaign and then tried to influence the very situation which brought about some of that. And the likes of Mark Pollock, who is paralysed uh, and doing his best to change, you know, uh, support in that area. There are people who have come through their mess has become their message. Those are the sort of people, everyday heroes who inspire me rather than some big political leader. Oh, I think that's that's well said. And can I ask you also what advice you'd give to a younger Sean Gallagher, one who isn't 60, maybe one who's 17? I think I would say to my younger self that life is a journey. Uh, your goals will never be achieved when you get to one top of one mountain, another mountain appears. And to be content with that continuous and never-ending improvement process, that the only competitor Uh, and competition is against yourself not anybody else and the competition is to be better today than you were yesterday and strive to be better tomorrow than you are today that sense of of improvement or what the Japanese call Kaizen and the other one most importantly two more I'd say um, take 100% responsibility for your life Sean nobody's coming on a white horse to save you it's up to you to make the life that you want have an intentional life create a compelling future and most importantly of all as all of all as we get older is enjoy it because it won't be forever that's it what's next for sean gallagher the next phase is to remain healthy and fit and well, to be there for my kids and to enjoy the next phase of my life. Uh, I'm now 60 and people tell me 60 is, is, the, is the new 40. I have as much ambition now. I have any number of flip chart pages around my office with business ideas and concepts and I'm working on a couple of key areas. I'm going to focus, continue on property and real estate, uh, focusing more on housing. Uh, I want to focus on new businesses in the area of health. And when I say health, it's a catch-all, Bobby, for health, fitness, wellness, well-being, beauty and healthcare. Anything within that mix excites me. And the third one I've been interested in is coaching, mentoring and training. And at some stage, maybe I would bring all those three together in some way, shape or form. But that's the focus. And then I have a number of not-for-profit uh, areas I'm working on. One of them is I would like to see something done about the... Um, Going back to my own challenges with my sight and cataracts, uh, Lucy, our little six-year-old who is just adorable and beautiful, was born with congenital cataracts. It's hereditary in some instances. And we were blessed to be able to get surgery, but there are a lot of people on the waiting list for years uh, who are sitting in West Cork and Kerry and Clare uh, and other rural areas who are on waiting lists for years to get their sight. And sight is such a most amazing thing. Uh, every every people often ask me what's my philosophy I have three G's goals growth and gratitude yeah. my life is driven by goals so that I can continue to grow but as part of my meditation process every morning the first 15 minutes of my day truthfully is in gratitude I give thanks for the gift of life the fact of my health my faculties my abilities that I can see and hear and walk and talk for my family for Trisha and the kids for my work and enjoyment and everybody who's helping me along that journey but I'm grateful for my sight and I close my eyes and imagine if I couldn't see today, you know, I would be blind. I wouldn't be able to know. I wouldn't be able to see you now, Bobby. I wouldn't know what to wear. I wouldn't know what I was doing. I wouldn't be able to use a phone. I wouldn't be able to watch TV. Just imagine I wouldn't be able to see the beautiful sea and, and mountains around Greystone. I wouldn't be able to see any of that. That's a gift. And um, I have that gift now. And, you know, I want to be grateful for it. And I want to try and make sure that most people retain that gift of sight. Uh, and so I'm going to work really, really hard to try and find some initiatives to try and make some movement on that. OK, wonderful. 
Sean Gallagher, thank you so uh, much. Bobby, it's my pleasure. Life and Leadership with Bobby Kerr. A News Talk original. Brought to you by Amundi, an asset manager working today for all our tomorrows.